The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, I'm George Hay, Associate Editor of Reuters Breaking Views. Welcome to The Exchange. For this edition, we're very pleased to welcome one of the European Union's key players as it tries to transition to a greener future. Franz Timmermans has been a senior minister in the Dutch government and was a leading light in the Juncker Commission between 2014 and 2019. He's now executive vice president for the European Green Deal. Franz, welcome and thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Excellent. Well, we're um, we're at a key moment here whereby the EU has recently committed to tougher greenhouse gas emissions reductions by 2030. And I suppose what would be helpful is if we could start by you giving a sense of how things are going and the ways in which the areas you lead on need to be geared up to achieve those goals. Well, I think the, the good news for us was that uh, both the Parliament, European Parliament and the member states agreed to a climate law which would put into law that we need to uh, be climate neutral by 2050 and we need to reduce our emissions as compared to 1990 with at least 55% by 2030. Now, now that we have that law, um, we have to come up with uh, at least 12 other proposals uh, before the summer in mid-July to show what this means for all sorts of areas uh, like emissions and uh, energy efficiency and the transition to uh, renewable energy. Because the goal so far was to reduce the emissions by 40%, and we're increasing that goal to at least 55%. And we want to reach that in nine years' time. So that means that you have to change quite a lot of policies. Yeah, exactly. And um, that's, I mean, how how far along are you in, in your thinking for um, how to how to address those many different issues? Well, we've, we've been working for, for months now on the proposals, actually for, for, for over a year. Yeah. And we're almost ready to present them to the public and to the parliament and to the member states. On the 14th of July, we will present a package of 12 proposals. Right. OK. And um, I mean, would you would you be able to kind of pull out um, of those many different things? What for you are the kind of, could you pick out, pick out literally like a, a handful of things which you think are the the most important? Maybe they're, I mean, they're obviously all important, but are there any that you think are absolutely critical? Yes, I, I, I think the first I need to mention is the emissions trading system, which has been very successful, which puts a price on carbon. Um, and we need to expand that. Uh, we need to look at, uh, at new areas, potentially new areas for an emissions trading system. We need to make sure in the existing emissions trading system, we enlarge that to new areas. We include shipping in it. We look at what uh, we can do in terms of re reducing the amount of free allowances we give. Uh, so emissions trading is going to be extremely important. And the more so um, now we see that the market is really putting a lot of trust in that system. The price has gone up uh, over 50 euros a ton now. Yeah. So I think that that is a, a market instrument that's going to be extremely important for us to reach our goals. Then, of course, uh, the emission uh, emissions of cars has always been an instrument that helped us decarbonize. Because just for your background, there's three areas that are particularly challenging uh, for us to reach our goals. One is the um, is buildings. The other one is transport. And the third is agriculture. So we need to have particular attention on these sectors 
so that we help them decarbonize and help them uh, reach our goals. Right. OK. I mean, you mentioned the, um, the carbon price there, which is kind of really kind of soared really up up above 50 um, in a fairly short period of time. And I just wondered, um, first of all, is that, is that do you see that as a kind of blessing or a curse? Because clearly in one important way, it's a blessing because uh, the, the price of carbon needs to be um, innate in, in, in everything going forward. But is it is there such a thing as going up too fast? Well, I think that, that for some industries, this is a steep uh, increase and um, it will mean uh, that um, they will have to keep a keen eye on their pr profitability um, because not everyone has, has taken that into account because, you know, a year ago we're at, we're at 14 euros or something like that. So exactly, yeah. uh, that, that is, is a challenge for some industries. But on balance, I think it's still a blessing because it really, as you say, it puts a price on carbon. It puts a huge bonus on decarbonizing. Exactly, um, but uh, I suppose um, uh, there's there are various kind of studies that have been done saying, um, you know, at the moment, even even at its current relatively exalted level, it's uh, it's not it's not quite where it needs to be to kind of uh, bring in and incentivize some of the real technological changes and technical yes. advancements that would be needed to to kind of hit net zero. And I'm thinking of things like hydrogen and carbon capture. So yes. presumably, I mean, it's obviously it's it's it's. It's, it's presumably an undiluted good from that perspective that it's going up. Yes, and 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 I mean, in 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 some areas and in some countries, the price is even a lot higher. Uh, so it, it it will have the propensity to go up. Um, and I think I, I think that's um, in principle, it's a good good development because it does incentivize industries to decarbonize. Uh, the only yeah. thing where we need to be careful is is in those areas that affect. Um, citizens and consumers directly uh, that we we make sure uh, this doesn't create energy poverty so you need to have ways of compensating uh, when um, you know putting a price on carbon has a an effect for instance on uh, what you pay to heat your house yes exactly um but i mean one one in, important part of the um the way that the ets works is this um uh, relatively new thing called the market stability reserve, which is, um, I, I mean, I, I would have thought you you would have seen it as quite a success in that it's kind of one of the one of the reasons why the uh, price has gone up. Um, do you do you see the the, the commission as a um, is it as effectively like the central bank of the uh, of the ETS? Um, and I mean, the, the MSR is a bit like a kind of um, it is a way of setting the price. Um, do you do you feel kind of comfortable um, being the central bank of this kind of carbon market? Or well, I'm not sure we're a central bank. We're more sort of a market regulator. That's what we yeah. are. Right. Uh, and I think, like any market, it needs to be regulated. But then you had you need the market. The market forces need to be regulated, but the market needs to be able to work. And to 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 work. Um, you know, you don't need too much intervention uh, because there's been, a, as you know, an eternal debate about whether we should set a minimum price or not. Right. Um, I, I think leaving leaving the market for regulating market forces and then leaving them to do the job is, I think, the best thing we can do as a regulator. Yeah. 
but but I suppose I mean the MSR works as just a way of kind of gradually tightening yes. the, the the excess in the indeed, uh, indeed. which which kind of was one of the reasons why there was a low price before. Um, but it's kind of tend to say it's tend to it tended to be seen as a as a kind of uh, and certainly some investors are seeing it as a kind of one way bet because they see it as you're progressively tightening the market and the, that's kind of the whole point in the way because you want to increase the price and you yes. don't want it to be low lowly like it was before but um i mean is there ever a is there ever a kind of a, a a case to be made for the msr not not just being a kind of tightening thing but a a, a tool but also a a, a way to kind of lo loosen the market if it gets too tight is well, if for example it's going up too quickly the price well that's always a possibility uh but that's not uh, how i see things developing right now i think there's still there's still uh well we still need to expand it to other areas we still need to have a close look on areas where it is still incomplete uh, i think uh, we still have huge amounts of free allowances yeah. So um, theoretically, you're right, but we're a long way from that situation. Let me put it that way. Right. OK. And and I suppose just from the perspective of some of these uh, industries or countries on the receiving end of um, the, the price going up, I mean, do they if, if, if they if if you had a kind of Eastern Europe, European country or um, company from any 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 place approaching you and saying, you know, or, or approaching any member of the European uh, uh, enterprise and saying, look, um, this price is just going up too fast. You just need to give us a, a whole load of, uh, you know, to, need to issue a whole load of new permits and um, ease, you know, ease things and stop the price going through the roof. How would, how do you think the European, um, the European Union collectively would, respond to that would i mean because we, we presumably don't want a situation where that kind of thing did happen and then the price just slumped again yes. so how, how do you kind of strike that balance it's quite difficult well, again again it's, it's theoretical because nobody has approached us with that demand um some are a bit worried about it's not i mean they knew the price was going to go up they're only yeah. a bit surprised that it's going up this quickly Right, um, and I think I think some of this is also because markets are anticipating the measures we will announce, um, right. and, and then after we've announced the measures, um, well, I, I'm not one to predict the market, but I, I guess there's also a possibility that the price will continue to rise, but not this quickly. Right. Okay. And um, uh, a related theme to um, the uh, the ETS is um this other big which is a growing big issue about carbon border adjustments yes and, and uh i just wondered how where, where are you with that um as a as a kind of concept at the moment because uh, a lot of people paid attention to what john kerry said when he uh met uh, people in the european union earlier this year and he, he kind of saw it as a um you know a, a, a not necessarily the first thing that you would try to use to um, meet emissions reductions targets. So where 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 are you with it at the moment? Well, well first, first a word on on John. Uh, John has become a lot more nuanced, John Kerry, about about it since then. Um, but but um, for us, well, again, this is this is going to be part of the package we'll present in July. 
And it's technically very complicated. You need to go into the details of sectors. Uh, you need to be sure about your case. Yeah. We want it to be in conformity with WTO rules. Uh, we want to, it to be targeted where we see a, a, a clear risk of um, carbon leakage. So there's all sorts of criteria uh, uh, that um, uh, force us to be very precise um, uh, because I, I, I certainly don't want to take any risks uh, with the carbon border adjustment mechanism. But I also believe we need it because there is going to be a risk of carbon leakage and we need to preempt that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, is, is there an argument for kind of um, basically focusing it on the a particular group of heavy emitting sectors and and just sticking it sticking to the to, to that or just using that as a kind of opening gambit in this debate um or do you see it as a kind of a potentially uh something with a potentially wider application well there's not really a contradiction between what you're saying if you wanted to have a wider value you will have to start by being very precise on very precise sectors to yeah. demonstrate that you're true to your word, that you're doing it only if there's a risk of carbon leakage uh, yeah. and only if it, it is in conformity with WTO rules. These are very, very strict um, uh, demands we have. So, so you know, it, it's, not, it's not what they call buckshot. It has to be very, very precise. Right, and, um, but uh, it, I mean, do you, do you see it as something that could potentially be uh, 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 an area of big progress at the, you know, the, the main event this year, which is obviously COP26? Do you, do you think that, uh, I mean, given the complexity of, um, of trying to nail down how this works, do you see that it is possible to make some progress there with the US and China and any of the other major interested parties well I, I think i mean if you see the reaction so far uh with our major trading partners all of them have questions mm -hmm. uh all of them are a bit grumpy about it or at least <laughs> they, they they don't they, they're not sure they like it let me put it this way but all of them are also i think studying how they could potentially avoid it uh, which I think is a good which thing. Which is obviously the point, yes. Yeah, so. That's the whole point, you know. Uh, the best CBAM is the one you don't need to use. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's how I see it. I, I see it as, as you know, as, as saying to our international partners, you know, we've all subscribed to the Paris Agreement. We all are under an obligation to decarbonize. If we all do it, there's no need for a CBAM. Yeah, yeah. And, and presumably... I mean that's that's one area that has really kind of made some progress since, um, I mean even this time last year, even six months ago, because you you are seeing, um, I mean obviously you got the Biden administration, but China is moving on, on net zero targets. Um, so there there is some kind of optimism that that, that the carbon border adjustment might not have to take up all the, all the kind of strain here. Well, yeah, and and, and you know we we we've just concluded which I, I wouldn't have thought possible a couple of months ago. We've just concluded a green alliance with Japan. Right. And very intense uh, negotiations, very precise, and uh, both parties really wanted it. And, and I, I, that's so encouraging that yeah. you can come together with a, with a very powerful industrial nation that has uh, some similarities with us, but also big differences, 
and at the end of the day agree that we are in an alliance, that we need to decarbonize and reach net zero by the middle of the century. And I, f- I find these developments really encouraging. Yeah, yeah. While we're on COP26, by the way, I mean, do you, what is your, um, what is the kind of, uh, again, focusing on maybe like a handful of things that you think are most important? Yeah. What What do you think is the kind of art of the possible from COP26? If you, what do you think if you come out of it on the 12th of November? And what, what would for you be like, that was a good COP26 that made progress? How, what would that look like? Well, to put it in one in one criterion, uh, do we still have a shot uh, to stay within uh, uh, 1.5 degrees or substantially below two degrees? That right. that is what we need to be. Right. Um, uh, and and uh, then of course we have a lot of things we need to fix before we could say that with any confidence um, in in November, which means having a, a very close look at what's really happening in China. Um, you know, there's a lot of attention also in 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 the financing of coal-fired power generation that needs to come down substantially. Yeah. Internationally, it should be banned. I hope we can convince all our partners to stop uh, international financing of coal-fired uh, power generation. We need to look at what when uh, China is going to peak. Um, hopefully, as close as possible to 2025, which would give us still an opportunity to get where we need to go. Yeah. Uh, and then we have to look at their investments as well and under their five-year plan. We have to have a, 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 a thorough conversation with another major emitter and in, in industrial powerhouse, which is India, which at this stage, of course, is complicated to no fault of theirs, but simply because of the situation they're in with this pandemic. Um, and then we have another a number of other players that that we'll need to address in the industrialized world. And then, of course, we have our pledges to the developing world, um, right. where I believe the most important thing is that we are true to our word in terms of the finances we provide for their adaptation and mitigation efforts. The 100 million, a billion that was promised, it yeah. still isn't there. We're, we still fall short of that. And we, may, we need to make sure we don't, because otherwise... You know, what is the incentive for them to be part of a global agreement if they don't get the means to actually, you know, uh, industrialize and at the same time avoid making the mistakes we've been making over the last yeah. 200 years? Well, that's it. I mean, it's basically like a, a massive version of the just transition, which you're in charge of in the, in, yeah. in the European Union. But it, it kind of for, it's, a, it's a global issue. And um, I mean, it's uh, just I mean, of that of that money that is being kind of earmarked. Um, or talked about um how how do you i mean in terms of the money that should go to the developing countries to help them decarbonize i mean how how do you think that should be deployed it, is it is it a question of kind of subsidizing their own uh their own industries to 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 in the same way that we do in europe in order to kind of incentivize wind power and and, and other things like that or uh is there a is there another way to do it or how do you think, well, I, think that? I, I think the public money uh, in principle should be money spent on adaptation and mitigation you know right. building uh, better infrastructure dams uh, 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 reforestation efforts uh, greening irrigation things like that um, sometimes in grids etc uh, but I, I do believe that the, the better way uh, to help them um, um, reach the energy levels they need, which is mainly electricity, is to help them get access to foreign investment. 
And right. to do that, um, you need to create the right conditions in terms of, of, of uh, governance in, in those countries, but also in terms of supporting foreign investment. That, that's something we can do. Um, and in terms of technology transfers. And I think, you know, there's been a little bit too, 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 too um, we're, we've been a bit too uh, lax on uh, technology transfers because I think there's, a, there's an incredible potential here uh, to help countries in Africa and the Pacific just leapfrog over a number of developments. Give, you know, if you look at the price development of renewable energy, uh, and how quickly you have a return on investment. Yeah. It's almost it's almost a no-brainer that it's interesting to invest almost anywhere where there's a lot of sun and solar power. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you if you inv- if you build a, a a nuclear power plant, how many decades do you need before you have a return on investment or right, or right. even even a traditional power plant. If you build so- solar power uh, generation, you know, it's. I think it's six or seven or eight years, something like that. You know, yeah. so, so, so 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 actually, there's. Could it be a kind of um, an opportunity for uh, West I mean, European companies as well to go and absolutely uh, go and invest in and and get those kind of returns and help those countries decarbonize. I mean, that's that would seem to be um, everyone. That would, be, that would seem to be a common good. Yes, but also through technology transfers to help them develop their own industries. Um, uh, this is also about sharing technologies. I think, I think there's a lot of future in that um, uh, because you know many of the developing countries have, have excellent, excellent uh, plans of the, their own in terms of what they want to do with their energy mix. They just don't have the access to to capital and technology, and there we can be helpful. Right. Right. Um, I mean, it's it's not. This is not quite your um, direct responsibility, the uh, the commission, but um, it is very important to the whole green uh, debate. I just wondered uh, what your what your kind of view is on of the green taxonomy, because um, that's uh, it's it's, the, it's they're trying to kind of nail down exactly how it works and what does count as green and what doesn't. But um, uh, there has been certainly a lot of debate. Uh, in the first half of the, this year about whether gas should be and so on and so forth. Um, but it's very important for the investors that we talk to, um, to to kind of tell them what is and isn't green. Um, where do you think, how do you think that whole debate should, la- should land? Are people being too, uh, getting too over fastidious about what is green and what isn't green uh, or what? Well, I got to make a couple of comments about that. First of all, I never thought, um, you know, a year ago, uh, taxonomy would get this this importance and dimension that it's gotten now, um, because taxonomy is a tool that can be helpful. But at the end of the day, you know, especially major investors, they know exactly what is green and what isn't green. They need oh, don't, they don't need us to tell them. Right. Um, but it is still a helpful tool. I I I, I know. Uh, and then you know if you if you call something green, it has to be green, and that means not based on fossil fuel. Um, uh, uh, having said that, of course, there are fossil fuel based technologies that are also essential in the transition. There is no way we can have a successful transition uh, to to climate neutrality without increasing in certain areas as a transitional uh, measure, the role mm-hmm. of natural gas. Yeah. It, you know, it, moving from wood uh, and coal uh, to renewables 
in some areas, also in Europe, will need natural gas as a transitional energy carrier. That doesn't make natural gas green, but it makes natural gas essential for the transition. That's nuance. Right, right. Uh, and, and if you then, if you're clever and you, you create that network in a way that pre-fits uh, the network uh, for hydrogen or, or ammonia or other uh, no carbon energy carriers, then mm. you really invest in the long term. Then you're really uh, helping decarbonization. So that's the second nuance when you talk about natural gas. Um, on nuclear, yeah, the, the great advantage of nuclear is that it is zero emissions, uh, which is a huge advantage, but it doesn't make it green, does it? Right. <laughs> well, um, I mean, those, those are all uh, good points, but I suppose it's um, it's an issue um, like quite a lot of green issues where you seem to divide into there's a, a kind of Western uh, investor view of it and then there's a kind of uh, Eastern European uh, view of it because so much of those economies are um, coal. And um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the question is just really whether the... Uh, the latter group of people kind of end up watering down the whole thing, um, and well, uh, it, then it and it stops being useful. I suppose is the the issue. Well, yeah, indeed, indeed. But um, you know, uh, the investments in in natural gas are going to be helpful uh, to getting us where we need to be. And and it is very clear that if you are so deeply invested in coal, you need to get out of that. You will need, especially for heating. You will need uh, natural gas, um, right. you know, uh, and also because you will need to smooth into the new situation in a way that doesn't create energy poverty. Um, and then, of course, in, in Central and Eastern Europe, you have a huge political legacy because what people seem to have forgotten, and and uh, understandably so, because it's a long time ago. But in the in the communist system, for purely political reasons, energy had no price. Right. Uh, you know, to, to keep the communist system going, you needed economic models where you even the simplest of things needed to be uh, built uh, over an area of thousands and thousands of kilometers to avoid uh, the concentration of political power. Um, and that would make things much too expensive if energy would be uh, taken into account, you know, transport costs, etc., and production costs. So that's why they've, they've always, and they had Russian oil, so they could do with the energy whatever they liked. But that has created the impression that energy doesn't cost anything. I have another example, not, not in Europe. If, if, you, if you go to South Africa, and I think South Africa could be key in the energy transition if we get it right and working with South Africa and finding solutions with them. But if you have a large part of the population thinking that electricity is a commodity without a price, then of course you run into trouble. Yeah, that is a problem. <laughs> um, I, I suppose just with, with your uh, Green Deal hat on, um, you are the um, person in charge of that. Uh, how do you, how, how from your perspective have things changed, if at all, from the pre-COVID um, Green Deal that was kind of announced with um, a lot of fanfare um, towards the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, and um, and now we've got the kind of recovery plan, which is all about, which is supposed to be basic, basically about um, getting the getting the economy motoring, but in a green way after COVID. Um, how do you how do you think those uh, those two things have 
are those two th two things basically the same thing to you um um or is there a kind of difference in um in how things have developed well they, they seem to reinforce each other um uh because because uh, the 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 consequence of the covid uh, crisis is that we're now in the worst economic crisis since the second world war uh, and we need to dig ourselves out of this hole and for that um uh, surprisingly um uh, the european union came together and decided that we would put an immense amount of money in our recovery mm -hmm. um that also gives us the tools to immediately do the right recovery and that is to use the opportunities of the industrial revolution and invest in the economy of the future which is a green economy and a sustainable economy so it came together um and in that sense the recovery um uh, and the the uh, rec resilience and recovery plans um uh, do do help um you know it's like in the big lebowski where he says that the the, the rug ties the room together this is the thing that ties the room together right okay um but i mean in, in terms of uh the original green deal was um uh a quite kind of uh intriguing and uh, inventive use of scaling up um a certain amount basically leveraging up a certain amount of public money with uh um a large amount of private money yes. and and kind of getting getting a whole load of projects financed in that way um obviously the recovery plan is involves kind of grants as well as loans and um Indeed. it's um it's a slightly slightly different beast so um yes. if you're i suppose if you're a a, a private investor um keen to uh, get involved in one of these original green deal plans how have uh, is it is it basically business as usual is it basically the same kind of um beast in a way um or uh is it different that's a very good question i've never been asked that question before so you give me you give me pause to think but you know if i compare it let, let if i compare it to what we did in the previous mandate with um what's been called the Juncker plan hmm. um which uh, initially was criticized because it, it involved a lot of leveraging people yeah. were saying well you're selling overselling it it's too much leveraging well it worked it yeah. worked actually it worked rather well surprisingly right. well right uh, and that's of course that's the because it worked it, it, it was introduced also in the green deal initially yeah, exactly. Uh, but now, but now we're in in, a, in much bigger trouble in terms of our economy. So we've decided uh, to mobilise a lot of capital um, grants and indeed loans. Uh, interestingly enough, I don't think there'll be a huge uptake of the loans, by the way. But but the grants, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's a different approach. Uh, but the leverage factor will still be there. I mean, there's right. no way we can transit to uh, renewable energy just with public money we will need massive investments of right. private funds right so so but so there will be uh, the, the short answer is that there is there's still it's still a kind of uh, on the same scale of uh, private sector involvement um as you were originally assuming it's just that it's being given a a kind of extra shove because of the crisis and because that that means that you're using grants as well um and so in a way there's i mean i suppose there's just more public money but that doesn't mean from your perspective that there's not going to be um uh a need for the private money as well 
Oh, oh, absolutely. I think there's even more need for private money if we want it to be a, a success. Yeah. Incidentally, well, you mentioned that there won't necessarily be so many, uh, so much demand for loans. I mean, obviously, a grant is rather more appealing than a loan. But I mean, is, is there any particular reason why the, those loans might not be used so much? Well, I can only speculate. We'd have to talk to the member states. I think because the grants offer, offer a, a good opportunity. Um, uh, and I think there are, it's also because they have national means of, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the grants have a, a true added value uh, for mm. member states. Mm. But in terms of the loans, if you look at the spreads today and where the markets are, uh, a European loan or a national loan, there isn't, there isn't that much difference for member states. I guess that's probably it. But I'm right. speculating more than than, than, than starting from the figures. Fair enough. Just like, lastly, um, one uh, subject we, we've kind of slightly touched on already, but the, this whole issue of hydrogen and um, the role that um, new technologies can play. Um, how... Um, I mean, basically, there's in in the hydrogen amongst hydrogen watchers, there's um uh, a lot of uh, focus on all sorts of different colours of hydrogen. Yes, and, and you can get uh, uh and specifically grey all the way to green. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um uh, there's in Europe, there's there's a kind of potential interesting split whereby uh, countries that have uh, access to coastline. Uh, um, such as the UK and um, and uh, Norway uh, are quite interested in blue hydrogen and ways of kind of um, basically using gas to make hydrogen and then storing the carbon somewhere um, and then probably under the sea. And then um, uh, on the continent, there's um, there seems to be a more impetus. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong for for green hydrogen, which is the real which is the real kind of carbon free stuff, which is probably where everything's going to end up. But I just wondered, did you, how do you approach that? I mean, clearly green hydrogen is the best, but it's uh, it's not cost competitive at the moment. So how do, just, I'm just interested in your kind of wider thoughts about the appeal, the relative appeal of those two. Well, I, th I think the demand for hydrogen will go up very, very quickly now. And uh, we, we cannot keep up just with green hydrogen. And for hydrogen to succeed, we also need uh, uh, um, uh, enough production to create the market. I mean, it, it works to both ways. So we will need blue hydrogen to some extent uh, for some period of time. Uh, but I'm actually rather confident that the price of green hydrogen will very quickly become uh, competitive with blue hydrogen uh, for the simple reason that the price of renewables is going down so quickly. Right. Um, uh, so the it's carbon, becoming, and the carbon price is going up, I suppose. And the carbon price is going up and decarbonizing, you know, even with these very, very smart Norwegian, British and Dutch technologies, it still comes with a price. Um, uh, and 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 transporting this and storing it in old, old gas or oil fields also comes with a price. Um, um, so, although I think there are opportunities, I mean, we, we don't have the luxury to exclude anything. Uh, we need everything uh, together, including uh, blue uh, uh, hydrogen. But some on the sort of the more, let's call it more progressive side, arguing against blue hydrogen because they're afraid it will push green hydrogen out of the market. Mm. I don't believe that because 
you know, if you look at all the International Energy Agency reports over the years, they've always completely underestimated the speed with which the price of renewables is going down. Yeah. So, so I, I think that's still going to be the case for quite some time. Uh, the return on investment is very good. Solar panel technologies uh, are developing very quickly. Uh, uh, wind turbines, I mean, it's it's really mind-boggling if you see the speed with which this develops. It's really inspiring, frankly. Absolutely. I mean, the, you mentioned the IEA there, actually, and um, I just wondered what you made in passing on the of their uh, quite groundbreaking report last week, um, which uh, has set a lot of uh, people in the oil industry uh, slightly in a in a panic. But um, um, I mean, in a way, it's kind of just saying uh, what most people in the green space already knew. But um, how, how much do you do you think that will make a big impact um, do you, in, amongst the investment communities that that they are basically saying? you know, or that we can't have any more oil and gas um, uh, investment if we want to hit 1.5? I think I think it's a, it's a great report. I think it's a great report, but it's also completely logical and analytical uh, and yeah. honest. Uh, so, so the, you know, the IEA, uh, the IEA was created to promote oil. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, starting in the in the first oil crisis in '73. Um, yeah. uh, so, so to go from where they started to where they're now is it's mind-boggling and it's inspiring. Uh, and at the same time, you know, although there was a lot of reporting about this, many reactions uh, about this, but I was also a bit surprised. I don't know about you, but I I, I was surprised. It was sort of uh, there was almost a shrug in the investment community. Yeah, we knew this. Yeah. <laughs> no surprise there. So, so somehow this has already sort of been been digested by many in the investment community. Well, yeah, I I, I didn't quite. It, it it I mean, I think the significance of it is just that um, a lot of investors, uh, maybe slight the slightly dozier ones than the, the ones you just mentioned there, uh, have have in the past just excused inaction by saying, well, the IEA thinks that. Their base case thinks that you know that gas is going to demand is going to keep on growing till 2040 or whatever, and uh, yeah. and this one now says um, no, it isn't, and uh, and I think on the on the basis that um, the investors just used the uh, the base case before and therefore didn't see much need to to go very fast. Um, Indeed, yeah. I think yeah. I think probably that's what's what's going on there. But yes, um, um, I think. Um, By the way. There's still massive and massive investment of fossils, and huh? let's not kid ourselves. Well, exactly. But um, I suppose, uh, do you have any um, last thoughts about uh, where we are in this kind of very important COP26 year and um, uh, any other things that we haven't already talked about that you um, want to flag? Well, I, th I think we're on a knife's edge this year. I think it's, it's going to be, we're going to need all our efforts to come to a good result. In, in Glasgow. And I think it is, it, it is essential because, you know, there's going to be no uh, um, shortage of bad news in the years to come in terms of what's happening to our climate. Yeah. Um, so we need all the good news we can get in terms of the human response to this crisis. Uh, and and the, the one thing I dread most is paralysis. People thinking it's a lost cause anyway. Let's stop trying, you know, and 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 we might get close to that situation if we don't really show the first results of our efforts. Yeah, 
Okay. Well, listen, we're going to leave it there. Um, Franz, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, that was really interesting and a really good uh, overview of everything that's important that's happening um, in, in 2021. So thank you very much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. That's our show for this week. I would like to thank my guest, Franz Timmermans, and our producer, Freddie Joyner, in New York. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, Viewsroom, on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Check us out every day on breakingviews.com, and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.